Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Pardes Parsha podcast. We're very excited today. We have Dr. Rabbi Mish Hammer Kasoy, Rosh Beit Midrash for the Pardes Year Program, colleague, teacher, wise person who's joining us. Hello, Mish. Hello, Tzvi. Wow, we're so happy to have you, and we're also excited we're starting another book of the Torah. We have finished Breshit, and believe it or not, we are moving on to Shmot. I want to remind our listeners, our loyal listeners and new listeners alike, that uh, we tape this in advance. So while we are talking, unfortunately, the war is still going on. The hostages, many of them are still in Aza. And so uh, that mood may be reflected in uh, how we discuss and talk about things today. And we also hope we offer our profound prayers that by the time you're listening to this, that there will be peace. The hostages will be returned safe to their families and the world will look a lot better. Amen. So we are starting the book of Shemot. And uh, of course, the biggest transition is really on two levels. First, we go from the story of a family to the story of a people, right? We now have B'nai Yisrael, and there are lots of us, we're told uh, early on. And of course, a transition in leadership. Instead of patriarchs, instead of Yosef and Yehuda, we now have the emergence of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu. And so, Misha, tell us your thoughts about our transition into this story and what you think the opening in particular is trying to teach us or challenge us. So I'm thinking about what makes a leader. I'm thinking about Moshe's early life. We have a little bit about when he's born, and then his work really starts when he's 80. And then there's these six verses in the middle. And those are the verses that I want to focus on, what I call his young adult life. Some of Farshim think he's 20. The Midrash said maybe he's 40. From where I'm sitting, both of those are young, by the way. I just want to be clear. <laughs> uh, 40 still sounds pretty young to me these days. Yeah, but I think the idea of thinking about these as his young adult life makes a lot of sense, a lot of identity work. He grows up and he's brought to Bat Paro and then he it says he grows up and he's brought to Paro and he is a child, a son to her and she names him Moshe and then it says and then it was in those days that Moshe grew again a second time the same but we understand that it's a different and then there's three episodes before the next thing that happens is the snack. The burning bush. The burning bush that he's revealed in the burning bush. And then he goes to the Skenim, the Jewish elders, and then to Paro. And all of that, it says explicitly, although it only gets to say that sentence in the chapter seven, that Moshe was 80 when that took place. We've got just six verses about his developmental years, those years when he could have been a student at Pardes. Um, but of course he would have been a student at Pardes. Of course. Although what we've been studying before the Torah was given is open to question. But just to help us locate ourselves, for those, you know how like when you're about to watch season two and it's been so long you don't remember season one, you need one of those YouTube recaps. So just to understand, on the one hand, Moshe is born as this miraculous child, right? He is saved from being thrown to the Nile. He's put into an ark reminiscent of Noah, I think. And then he's miraculous miraculously plucked out of the water by no one other than uh, the daughter of Paro. 
And then he has a singular upbringing. He is a Israelite who is brought up as a child of Paro in the palace. We have no indication at what point or if ever does he know that he's an Israelite. And his early life is... I think is, I want to disagree with you there. I think because he's... It says, He's nursed by his mother. Right, so. but I, I'm always imagining maybe she keeps his identity secret. She wants to protect him. It's a good question. When he says he goes out among his brothers, is that his perspective, is that the narrative perspective? I guess we could also argue which one's better, uh, if he knows or doesn't know. But we know very little about what he's like as a young man, what his interests are, what it's like growing up. You're telling us a story gives us actually these striking moments but not a general picture that you would imagine the biography of a great leader would offer. To be able to look at three episodes that are formative episodes in Moshe's life actually tells the whole story, really, of who is Moshe Rabbeinu and why he is chosen. These are the three things that God needs to witness before God can reveal God's self to Moshe at the burning bush. This is what qualifies him. And these are things, I mean, it's interesting that these things, let's say, are happening when he's 20 and the burning bush happens when he's 80. We'll talk about that too. But let's look at those episodes now. Yeah, let's take a look. Okay, so it says, uh, I'll just read there. It's three two-verse episodes. Each one of them is two verses. Um, it was in those days that Moshe grew and he went to his brethren or his brothers and he saw their suffering and he saw an Egyptian man smiting Makeh, a Hebrew man from amongst his brothers twice. The beginning of the verse, brothers, and at the end of the verse, brothers. And he turns this way and that, and he sees a third time in two verses, that there's no man there. And he, the same makeh, he, the same verb, he, he strikes, smites, strikes. is the term we used to grow I up would, with. I'm, I'm going to say smite, well, because I, because we have to, we'll talk about what's the relationship between these two, but he does the same verse, um, he smites the mitzri, the Egyptian guy, and he buries him in the, in the sand. So we know that he's, we know for sure that Moshe has killed the Egyptian. And, there's these two words, vayigdal, right? He is he grows in verse ten, and then he grows again in verse eleven, and he also sees three times in verse eleven. He sees his brothers twice in that same verse. Uh, the Rashi comments on vayar basivlotam that he should have seen et sivlotam. There should have been an object like the suffering. He saw the suffering. When you have a direct object, the right introductory word is et. And when you use b, he saw into their suffering. So he's not looking at their suffering as an object. He's actually experiencing their suffering. And he really like feels at one with his brother. Rashi says he set his eyes and mind to share in their distress, right? He identifies. And it, I think it's so interesting. First of all, the choice of brother, as you already raised, Svi, it's a choice actually, when you're 20, to decide who are your brothers, and especially for Moshe Rabbeinu. And the Ibn Ezra makes a really big deal about how important it is that Moshe grows up in the Paro's home as a prince. So he could have seen himself as an Egyptian, but he doesn't. He chooses to see himself as a Hebrew, and that identification he doesn't just witness, he internalizes that identity. So what you're describing here, basically, there's a moment 
it sounds like this is a moment of tremendous choice for him. He could have continued to move on as saying, well, these really aren't my people. I belong to the palace. My family lives in the palace. I'm a prince of Egypt, to quote the movie. And it's it's too bad what's happening. But obviously, these are the decisions that my stepfather or whatever term you want to use has made and moved right on. Instead, you're saying he not only witnesses, but he experiences it happening to himself, his brethren, his family, his people. I guess an open question, did he reach these conclusions earlier or does he walk out there and see what's going on in that moment, almost in an internal, natural way, he can't deny that this is his people who are suffering so terribly and his desire to do something about it. And his desire to do something about it is the key piece here because, you know, he witnesses and he acts in the snap of a finger and he does something radical and big the decision to kill the egyptian at that moment and he sees she'en ish there's no person there and there's so much commentary about these two verses about understanding what's going on for moshe and is this the appropriate thing to do why does he kill the egyptian and on the one hand it's the same verb as i pointed out to you the egyptian man is make and the moshe is make both of them are striking, but it's clear that one results in death and the other seems not to result in death. And there's two ways of sort of looking at it. One way of looking at it is Moshe was saving the slave's life and the Egyptian slave master was going to murder the slave. And so Moshe steps in and saves the powerless person against the powerful person. That's one way of seeing it. And the other way of seeing it is, no, Maybe not. Maybe Moshe is impetuous. The Ramban raises the possibility. He just, he can't control himself. He's so filled with anger because his identity with his brother is so strong that he needs to do something. There's lots of Mitrashim that are trying to work through this. The Nitziv says part of what was wrong here was the he sees an ish mitzri makeh ish ivri, that he is hitting a Hebrew slave. And that maybe what says the Nitziv, it was anti-Semitism. The only reason he was smacking him was because he was Jewish. And that's what makes Moshe jump into action is the fact that it's just like senseless anti-Semitism. Some of the Midrashim go in the other direction. The, the slave master was also a rapist and was also trying to kill this slave over time and, and repeatedly. So... They're all dealing with this dilemma, which I'd like to sort of reduce, if I can, to like suggest there's almost a question of defending your brother, which could be in tension with the human rights of the slave master. Is it okay to sacrifice the human rights of the slave master? He doesn't get a fair trial and he just gets executed without trial summarily. Or really, maybe Moshe, it's a growing moment for Moshe. Maybe Moshe's not right. You know, the Midrash Tirat's Moshe suggests that maybe this is why he wasn't allowed to go into the land of Israel, because he had killed the Egyptian slave master, and it wasn't necessary, and he's a murderer. So there's a few tensions here that I think you've raised in an interesting way. Number one, the question of how premeditated is this, right? When it says he looks either direction, it could either be that, like, he's decided that this is the step he's going to take, and now he's just making sure that the moment is right. Or I sometimes read it as he looks and sees, is anybody going to do anything here to stop this? Is, is anybody? And then just acts. So there's that one question of premeditation versus this impulsive jump. But you're also raising, I think, a more significant question that is the justice of Moshe's behavior. 
right? In other words, could there have been another way to stop this Egyptian from beating this uh, Israelite? Was uh, striking him and killing him the only possible answer? Is it okay? Is that something we want to see in our future leaders, somebody who kills this Egyptian, that maybe we hope or expect that even in the face of this terrible behavior, he comes up with a different solution to save the Israelite and express his identification without killing this man. So there's this basic like moral foundational question that I feel that you're raising. And I almost feel when Rashi says he killed him with shame and for Rashi used God's name, that's the way it's sort of like cleaning Moshe's hands of the mm. whole thing. In other words, it was a mystical death. And obviously if God wasn't endorsing it, then the use of the divine name would not have worked. And so in a way it kind of justifies Moshe, but that's not in the text. The text you're suggesting really leaves open what's Moshe doing here is this impulsive? Is this rational? And maybe even more important, is this okay? Is this a model to be emulated or is this something that we want to be concerned about? So it's possible to read this is like what you do when you're 21 and you have a lot of anger and you're working through your identity or that I think the Ramban thinks that Moshe's got an anger problem right to the end of his days. But I think what I'd like to sit with for a minute is his identity with his brothers. And I think that that is the first step. And I think especially when you look at the three episodes together, that becomes very clear, is that this is an episode where you see Israelite against Egyptian, and he has a strong identification with his Israelite Echav, his brothers. And maybe it's justified to act in an extreme way, or he feels that identity pushes him to act in an extreme way because he feels so strongly about his brethren. And I I see that this is something that is difficult for my students. I've taught this story a lot, and they often are upset by this because we'll say the three episodes, the first episode is Israelite against Egyptian. So the second episode is this. The second episode is, it's like Mamish the second day. He goes out the very next day. There's two Hebrews and they're bickering. And Moshe can't stop himself. He says to the wicked guy, he knows right away who's the wicked guy. And he says to him, Why are you beating up your brother, your re'echa, your fellow countrymen? The wicked one turns to Moshe and says, who put you to be judge over me? Are you planning to kill me just like you killed the Egyptian? And Moshe is terrified and he says, I see they know what's going on. I feel so bad for Moshe. I like really identified like I think I'm still 22. But as I get to this episode, I'm imagining I have a Musser journal every day. I like go and review my day. What did I do right and do wrong? And Moshe has just, he probably went to bed that night, right? After he killed the Egyptian, like he's a hero. He uh, saved the Hebrew from his oppressor and he probably gave himself a really good grade. And then the next day he wakes up and he sees, oh my gosh, this is what Hebrews are like. They are bicker amongst themselves and they hit each other. It's not enough that other people are oppressing us. We have to be bickering with each other. And again, he wants to get involved and he sees that they, instead of applauding him for the wonderful redemption that he did yesterday, they're like, what the heck? You're going to kill us just like you killed the other guy? Like, there's no, no one standing up to applaud him for his act of righteousness and courage and conviction and risk. And he's seeing just how big the risk is. And now he has to flee. And he's perceived as someone who's very scary. 
and someone who's very self-righteous and acts out of impulse. Just to keep in line with your earlier reading about loyalty, there's another situation here where one person is striking another, but he doesn't kill the wicked one, right? He uses his words, as we were often to tell our young children <laughs> when they want to use their hands or fists to use their words. Uh, sometimes adults need that too. I think it sort of moves nicely along with what you're suggesting earlier, that the issue of how he acts differently when it's two Israelites versus an Israelite and Egyptian is present here, right? He doesn't strike down the wicked person. He rebukes him to try to make it stop, which already I think might be suggestive of this line that you're you're taking. Exactly. But he's still somebody who sees something bad going on and wants to fix it, solve it, intervene. Right. He is hyper-motivated, this guy. Yes, hyper, hyper. He's a man of action, and the wicked one right away tells him, mind your own business. And I mean, I really feel for Moshe at that moment, it must have been a very, very frustrating and disillusioning experience for him to have that episode. And then exactly what he's afraid of happens. Vishma Paro, Moshe. And Paro hears what's happened and he wants to kill Moshe. Vayivrach Moshe Mipne Paro. And Moshe runs away, escapes from Paro. This is the third time we've got the same verb in the same form repeated. We had v'yigdal, v'yigdal, two different v'yigdals, and then we had v'yar, 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 three times seeing, and now we have in these six verses again, the same, he sits and he sits. One means he sits and one means he settles. JPS translates them differently, of course, settled and sat by the well. So he's run away to Midian, which is a very natural reaction. Like if you think about your 20-year-old self, right? You First, you identify as a Jew very strongly. Then you have a really annoying experience. And then you're like, forget it then. And he runs to me, John. Nobody wants me. I'm going to be. Well, to be fair, they do want to kill him. So I think he, you know, he might still harbor some identity. But, you know, being afraid of being killed is a pretty good motivator to move. Okay, I hear you. Uh, although I'll read the next line and I'll build my case further. And uh, okay, then there's this little interpolated verse, which is setting you up for that. Of course, these three episodes do move the plot along to state the obvious. They state, as you just said, that Moshe has to run away and then also why he gets married. Um, Yitro has seven daughters and they're going out to water their father's flock. And the shepherds come and they chase them away. They vanquish them. And Moshe gets up and he rises and he saves them. He is their savior and he waters their flock. Then when the when the daughters come back and they see their father and their father says, wow, you got here so fast today. And they say, they say, well, there was this Egyptian guy who saved him. So it was like he wasn't wearing his kippan tzitzis anymore. He looked like an Egyptian guy. And that fact that he looked like an Egyptian, I think, becomes very profound of a like a sort of him fleeing from his previous identity. Rav Moshe Lichtenstein sort of takes this line. I'm, I'm a little bit making his argument, which was a beautiful argument, that 
he doesn't start to save the Jewish people until 80 is because he's had this whole crisis of faith and he's really trying to run away. He just wants to live the simple life. Um, he doesn't want to be a hero. And yet... Can't help himself. He can't help himself. So there he is. He's finally gone away and he has no skin in the game. There's no Jew involved. It's two non-Jews against each other and he can't help it. He has to save. He has to redeem the person who is being oppressed and who is being treated unfairly. This is the plot of every action movie I saw as a teenager, right? The accomplished soldier fighting for a cause, but then they kick him out of the army because he used excessive force or he made a bad <laughs> judgment. And then he goes off to live on his own, bothering no one. And then, of course, the evil guy in town starts picking on the widow or whoever it is. And the action hero cannot help himself, but uh, gets the gun out and uh, saves the day because he just can't witness injustice. He's just he not just can't that way. witness injustice. And one thing that has been hovering for me so much since October 7th, you know, we have Rachel, our student support professional, Rachel Goldberg, her son, Hirsch Goldberg Poland has been kidnapped when he was alive because his best friend, Anair, was standing at the front of the shelter that they were in and was catching the grenades and throwing them back out and throwing them back out. And his mother said, I didn't want a hero. I just wanted an alive kid. You know, like, why did he have to be the one? Because Anair didn't make it. Eventually, he threw out seven grenades and the eighth one blew up in his face and he died. And he said, I didn't want, she, she would have rather just had a kid who was come home and live a simple life. And her father said to her, Somebody who's halash can't be a gibor. If you're weak, you can't be a hero. But if you're a hero, you can't help yourself. You have to be a hero. And so Anair was a hero in that moment. He couldn't help himself. And so to Moshe, he couldn't help himself there. He had to save them and he couldn't help it. So let's compare for a moment the motivations that you've laid out in episode one and episode three. In episode one, you're telling us you have this, I'll use this term, a nationally loyal, motivated Moshe who sees his brethren in trouble, suffering, and whether he acts in a premeditated, rational way or an impulsive way, what drives him is, my brother is being beaten, no one is stopping it, I have to stop it, and the person who's doing it is wicked, and I'm going to stop him in the most ultimate way, I'm going to kill him. And then you get to episode three, and what you're describing is a a Moshe whose identity is at best in a fog, is unclear. You're suggesting that he not only left Egypt behind, but he left his brethren behind, and he's now moving on to something else. And here he is, and he's confronted with uh, this injustice of these other shepherds picking on these women shepherds and not letting them have access to the water. He doesn't kill anybody, it seems like, in this case, or we don't know, but he also gets up and acts. But and this is more, like I said, this is the action hero who is acting without any other motive other than to defend the weak against the oppressor without any of that you know, sense of my brothers being involved or not, which sort of suggests here two very different ways of thinking about acting against suffering. One really located in our personal identity and who our brethren are, and the other, this very abstract, if you want to say, doesn't matter who these women are, doesn't matter who these other shepherds are, there's right and there's wrong, and I have to act. Right. Okay. So Nechama Leibovitch likes to paint it as three episodes that build on each other. The first one is non-Jew against Jew, and God's watching and says, 
not bad, not bad, but I want to see how you do it when, you know, when it's Jew against Jew. And then two non-Jews and the fact that he acts in that third episode shows that he's like reached true moral grandeur and that he is the right leader. But you could also read it a little bit differently, as you've sort of hinted to. I've, I've got a few soft spots for three great thinkers, all of whom happen to be Jewish, and they're all these great moral thinkers, but they're secular thinkers. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, Michael Sandel, and Michael Walzer. All of them are amazing, and they all deal with this question of defining morality and thick and thin relationships. How do we feel about justice in general? And they work with this question of loyalty. Um, so Haidt has uh, lists. He says, basically, you can boil it all down to six moral foundations. They are care and harm, fairness and cheating, loyalty and betrayal, authority and subversion, sanctity, degradation, and liberty, oppression. So basically, those are the things that you feel in your kishkas, right there, you're genetically programmed, he would suggest, um, to identify with these rights and wrongs. And all of us have them at some level, these moral taste buds. We all have them, but some of us have certain ones stronger than other ones. Uh, and he suggests that the liberals, they like to focus on care. You know, it's like, how do we have rachamim for the oppressed? How do we have fairness? It's not okay that one has more than the other. And liberty. How can you deprive the daughters of Midian? You're getting in the way of their freedom by preventing them from watering their flock. So those are liberal moral values. And liberals tend to focus on them and feel them strongly and identify with them. And conservatives focus on loyalty, authority, and sanctity. They feel those taste buds more strongly. These stories deal with care, fairness, liberty. I think we understand those and loyalty. Um, and authority and sanctity, which are super important principles. I hope. Will you have me back to for another podcast? Of again? course, we'll, of course. We'll, find we'll ways give you to a part two. Those, yeah, uh, uh, not in this parsha, but at a different parsha. I would say those. that authority and sanctity come up in enough parshas in the Torah that you'll be safe. You could probably throw a, a dart at uh, you know at I, a list, and yes, you'll hit one. We'll be able to get to them for sure. Thank you. So um, I think that we live in a liberal world, so it's easier for certainly for my students, to identify with those care, fairness, liberty principles than it is with the loyalty principle. And I'll put my own lot. The first time I read the book, I was like, loyalty is not a value. I had to read the book twice because the first time I was like, loyalty is absolute immorality. And to favor your Jewish people over other people, that's like Jewish supremacy that's totally not based in reality and doesn't make any sense. And that was my first feeling. So, um, so just to help us follow a little bit, there are these six different moral foundations. And we all have them, but we prioritize them differently. So a lot of times it's not that you're evil and I'm good or the other way around, but we prioritize differently. That's right. That's uh, Jonathan uh, Haidt's theory. And what you're saying is one way to read this, which you're saying the younger you would have read it, is Moshe grows. He starts out with this very particularistic, I'm going to protect my own people type of morality and strike down the Egyptian. But we get to the full growth of Moshe when he's able to act for these women he doesn't know because he sees oppression and he's going to solve it. So that's sort of Moshe growing and becoming an authentic moral leader, whereas in the beginning, that's not morality. Read that way, he's just acting to protect his own. And who says that the Israelite that's getting beaten has more of a right to life than the Egyptian who is uh, beating him? 
Authentic morality is universal. Authentic morality, as Kant and others would have us believe, is got to be blind to family or historical relationships or in-groups and out-groups. So that's sort of the way our students at Pardes are saying also would sort of like things to run. And also how I read it in the beginning. And yet you changed. Or you reconsidered. I reconsidered. Yeah, I reconsidered. Michael Sandel exactly starts where you did. But he has a book modestly named Justice. It's a great book. I couldn't recommend it more. I really recommend the Height books and the Sandel books equally strongly. Um, but his book is called Justice. And he starts with this question. And he says people usually think about there's universal rights that don't require consent. These are rights and wrongs that are objective in the world. And then there's also voluntary obligations that are particular and they require consent. They have to be contractual. And if they're not contractual, then you can't force them on me. And these are the two basic moral foundations that you're imagining. And then he basically has a whole chapter where he tries to investigate and explore obligations of solidarity, which are particular but don't require consent. And this is something that feels very difficult for a liberal mind, that there are obligations that we don't accept upon ourselves, that we have more for certain other people. So the uh, let me just read a couple sentences from him. He says, uh, first he considers in this chapter, which is called loyalty, he considers public apologies and reparations, collective responsibility for historic injustice, special responsibilities of family, family members of fellow citizens for one another, solidarity and camaraderie allegiance to one's village, community or countrymen, um, patriotism and all of those things, fraternal and filial loyalties, these feelings that like, you know, are these things about morality? And he says, the claims of solidarity seen in these examples, there's, it's really quite a collection of examples, um, are familiar features of our moral and political experience. Like we experience them instinctively. And I needed him to like wrench them all out for me and also myself to see, yes, like it actually would be difficult to live or make sense of our lives without them. But it's equally difficult to account for them in the language of moral individualism. So because they go against the way we've been acculturated to identify with moral individualism, we find it sort of contrary to think about our special relationship to our fellow citizens. Yeah, of course, we understand that we have a special relationship to our parents, which we don't choose, or our cousins. And they can't be captured by an ethic of consent. It really doesn't have to do with consent. That's what gives these claims their moral force. They draw on our encumbrances and they reflect our nature as storytelling beings, as situated selves. Morality has to do with our context and loyalty is about that. And it's part of the way we're built. So even though we can't get our head around it, when we're thinking in a Kantian perspective about morality, we do experience at some level an identification with, of course, our brothers and our fellow countrymen. And we understand that we have those obligations. And so as I grew up in my more mature self and I thought again, I thought, wow, I actually did come to understand that loyalty is a value for me. And it's not one that I am totally comfortable with because I've been educated in this Kantian ethic, but that is something that is important. And I understand that God saw it as actually a first precondition, that in order to be the leader of the Jewish people, Moshe had to love the Jews. So if I understand it, he doesn't transcend his earlier stage, he incorporates it. He lives in tension of both loving his own people in a special way, but also feeling a moral and ethical responsibility for the rest of the world. 
Exactly. And I think that what I would add to that on my own is, first of all, the examples of societies that have tried to overcome that sense of loyalty, right? I'm thinking of like the radical socialist movements that were against family, right? I'm thinking of Stalinist Russia where the child who informed on his parents mm -hmm. was lauded as a hero because look, he transcended that parochial family, I'm more loyal to you, and, and of course saw the entire nation as his comrades and therefore did the right thing. And I I would say to a lot of that is, I don't think it works that way. I don't think we become more moral and more sensitive and caring about humanity by abandoning our special feeling towards family and community and people. I think the concentric circles get stronger. I think that is precisely within the special relationships that we feel towards our family members, and we widen that out towards our community and towards our people and ultimately towards humanity, that if it's done well, the inner circles lead one to build broader circles without losing that sense of belonging to an inner circle. So I think they don't actually work in contrast to each other, but I think in the same way that a person who develops strong, loving relationships within their family, I think will be more inclined as they grow to build loving, caring relationships with people outside their family. And I feel that the reverse is also true. People who don't grow up feeling uniquely attached to the people that they're growing up with, I don't think that they'll grow into people who then transcend all that and feel connected to all of humanity. I think they will grow up to be people who feel very isolated and disconnected precisely from everybody, including all of humanity. And of course, you know, Sandel brings a lot of interesting examples about different choices where, let's say, Robert Lee, he opposed slavery, but he decided to lead the Confederate Army because he lived in Virginia. So you have to balance this is where Haidt suggests in his Happiness Hypothesis book, which is also an excellent book, that it's all about balance. You have to have a deep sense of loyalty if you don't love your children more than you love other people's children. If you don't protect your children first and foremost, then no one will be able to function well in the world. It's just critical to being able to move in the world. But if you only love your children and you say, I'm not going to take care of the rest of the world because I'm investing all of my energies in my children, then you're also not doing a good job of raising your children. And so what I think I see in these three episodes that make Moshe such a great leader is that in episode one, he's got this deep sense of loyalty and love for his brothers, the Ivrim. But in episode three, he also has a deep moral compass of morality and commitment to fairness and liberty and care that is not dependent on a personal relationship with the person that's being oppressed. And those two things together make a great leader. And so Haidt makes this argument like what you should do is you should have liberals and conservatives. They are opposites in the most literal sense. Like they're always demonizing each other. But everybody actually is moral, he says. And he says, a good place to look for wisdom, therefore, is where you least expect it, in the minds of your opponents. You already know the ideas that are common to your side, he says. But if you can take off the blinders of the myth of pure evil, then you can see the good ideas of the other side for the first time. And this is beautiful. And I, like I said, I think I've learned a lot by reading Height the second time and like sitting with loyalty and like understanding how I want loyalty and not less sanctity and authority, which were also things that, you know, I'm truly a liberal in my deepest core. But by listening, by sitting with those other morals to feel them powerfully, but I don't have to go all the way to my opponent. The greatness of Moshe is that he actually is holding both of those episodes and modeling all of those moral 
foundations at the same time. And uh, that's the beauty of our tradition is that it can hold both of them. You know, it's funny because I think in my core, I'm the opposite. I think really tradition and authority and sanctity have an innate pull on me that is much stronger than these broader ethical concerns of fairness for everyone and liberty for everyone. And so I think that I've certainly benefited right, from uh, being at Pardes and other places where people push back and force me to challenge and rethink uh, my own priorities, or at least understand that those who disagree with my priorities are not acting out of uh, any negative place, but actually are pursuing their positive. But again, we can embrace all of these, but of course there's going to be tension as we make decisions, whether it's decisions on the battlefield uh, where we are fighting. And I think without pulling us too deep into that, that could be some of the debates that are happening within the Jewish world. How much does our concern for our own survival versus, uh, you know, concern for uh, civilians on the other side? And we know that these moral issues are coming up for us all the time, and these debates are happening. And uh, what you're challenging us with is that uh, we can't run away from that. To run away from that and to opt for a simplistic one-sided approach will actually deprive us of not only our wisdom, but a certain natural way of being in either direction, that if I live purely as a particularist, I will lose an important element of my humanity. And if I live rejecting my particularism, I will lose a big sense of who I am and how I'm supposed to be in the world. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, but and we're talking to each other every day, and both of us have family members that are serving in Aza right now. And and our first priority, of course, is for them. Um, and my first prayers are for them every day. And I see how hard it is for me to get my head around the people who are calling for an immediate ceasefire. Like, wait a minute, what are they fighting for if not to get rid of this evilness that was perpetrated against us. And if we just stop now, then we've done a great disservice to, first of all, the hostages, and second of all, the future of our country if we don't defend ourselves. And yet, I see how hard it is at this time to like have a conversation with other people who can't see, they can't, they don't care about my son. Um, or they thought they don't care, but they can't. But they, but they can't prioritize they, they can't your pri son over civilians in Aza, right? And I think that's that's our problem, right? That in other words, we see that these moral categories are emotional on a certain level, much more than they are a product of cognitive critical reasoning. And so therefore, we're triggered right now. Everything that we care about, the loyalty to our family, the love of our country, the love of the Jewish people, the love of the land of Israel, all these loves and concerns are triggered at this moment. And I can't see the other side, really. I resent the other side that tells me not to prioritize that, but I have to understand that there are good people who are now, their emotions are triggered in the terms of fairness and equality, and they can't see our place of personal fear and suffering. So, you know, I guess at, at this moment in time, the best we can do perhaps is to try to believe that the people we are arguing with are not out to hurt us, but they just are not feeling what we're feeling. And they're going to say the same thing about us. I'm not out to hurt them, but I can't really feel what they're feeling. It's like we have a limited emotional space. It's like if something is burning hot, I like your idea of taste buds. If something is really spicy, there might be sugar in it, but it doesn't taste sweet to me. It tastes like my mouth is burning. And so when one of these, these approaches is really activated, it's very hard to find space for the other ones. It's so hard, but I, I think it, like what I, what I wish for at this time, 
what I'm trying to make space for, and I like it's super hard, is not only to just realize that there's good people on the other side, but also to try to have a conversation with the other, because we live in such a polarized world that we don't have a chance to like actually have a conversation. I'm like, I just can't get my head around. Can you try to make this understood? I can't get what you're coming from. Can you try to make it understood to me? If we were living together a little bit more, if we were more like Moshe Rabbeinu with two sides, right, and, that we'd be able to, to understand each other more. And uh, it's not a simple world we're in right now. It's no. Fun. So what Misha is telling us, if I'm going to sum up, that Moshe is a great leader because he can live with complexity. He can have different moral commitments that are powerful and strong within him, but pull in different directions, but still somehow hold them all together. And uh, this is what we are meant to aspire to, not to go for that false dichotomy, but to really embrace how all of these things uh, need to have space. And even in moments of great difficulty and challenge and fear, like we're in right now, and Moshe was in, to try to find space for all those things at the same time. So... She's challenged us. She usually does. That's Mish never comes in here and tells us we're all okay as we are. We always have to aspire. I know. But she, she's an aspirer for herself, so it's I legitimate. I am, because like, of course, after you've all said, don't forget that we have to have moral clarity and say that Hamas is terrible. And you're like, I, I don't want just to get to Elu Elu. Everything is this and that is to, is moral. No, and I also want to have moral clarity. Uh, and boy, it's hard to It's very, very hard. I haven't worked it out myself. Well, when but, you do, you'll come back and tell us exactly how to do it. Until then... <laughs> Uh, on behalf of Mish and myself, of course, we want to wish you a Shabbat Shalom. And of course, to offer again our, our prayers and our hopes that uh, peace will be in the land of Israel soon and the hostages will be returned and the Jewish people will live safely and happily and peacefully in the land of Israel uh, with its neighbors as well. And that, can we add, and that innocent civilians as much as possible should uh, not be harmed. Absolutely. Innocent people should never be harmed, if at all possible. That's for sure true. All right. Thank you very much, Me Shabbat shalom to all of you. Please listen again. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.